going to be fast. Hey listeners, today on American Stories, we're taking you on the road with stories from the driver's seat. Photographer and long-haul truck driver Rai Shirosky tells us how he survives 15-hour days behind the wheel on the interstate. You go to some really strange corners of your psyche, for sure. And adventurer and father of four Nathan Swartz gives us a peek at what it's like to raise a family out of an RV, all while crisscrossing the continent. We just find a national park we haven't been to, open up Google Maps and type in Walmart and McDonald's, and if those don't show up, we figure it's probably going to be a pretty cool spot. You're hearing us play Road Movies, written by composer John Adams in 1995. It's really at the heart of this episode, and you're going to get to know the piece's three movements, just as you'll get to know Rye and Nathan. And to cap off the show, we'll give you our complete performance. I'm Derek Wang. I'm Sofia Stoyanovich. And this is American Stories. We're so glad you're here. Have you ever been on the road and felt completely hypnotized? You know, you're on a long trip, looking out the window, seeing the scenes change outside, and you feel like you could just keep on going forever. I remember being about seven, sitting in the back seat one summer. We were doing a road trip from Washington State into Montana. And I remember just keeping my face glued to the car window, just trying to drink in everything outside. These big fields of crops, power lines, flying by, bend after bend, coming down the cascades. It felt endless. It was a really fast and a really slow experience at the same time. So that's what it's like on the road, isn't it? You can go from these long stretches of familiarity and sameness, and then something just comes out of nowhere. You know, say you're driving in the mountains, like I was north of LA, winding through the canyons, and all of a sudden you round a corner and there's the ocean. It just, it feels like it's in your face, you know, just bam, there's the Pacific, filling the horizon. That just cruises, doesn't it? Yeah, it's almost addicting to play. It's a groove for sure. Yeah, and road movies is all about how many different ways you can groove. Like, say we start at the very beginning of the piece. What makes it groove? So let's break this down. You start by laying down this rhythm for me. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, And then three. I join you with a different rhythmic layer on top of that. 
one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three. So there's a party trick. We'll dive a little deeper into road movies later on, but now let's introduce you to a guy who knows the road through his own eyes and also through the lens of his camera. It was a couple months ago when Sophia sent me some of these really beautiful photos of highway scenes. You know, a wide open road against the sunset, a lonely gas station lit up at night. And there was this one that had light reflecting off of a shiny truck with a blue sky mirrored against the chrome. So as it turns out, the truck belonged to the guy behind the camera, and we had the chance to talk with him. So here's Rai Shirosky. As a photographer, his pictures have been pretty much everywhere, in the New York Times, Vogue, and Time Magazine, among others. And as a long-haul truck driver, he spent a total of five years driving across the country. He's hauled it all. I-beams for bridges, bag pallets of cement, uh, lumber, military vehicles, farm equipment, all stuff like that. So what's a day in the office like for Rye? I mean, it's all over the place, but normal trucking days on average are probably somewhere around 15, 16 hour days. Um, you know, you're up at the crack of dawn, mostly you're stopping for fuel to try and eat anywhere like free five minutes you have 10 minutes. And, you know, you're driving on average, probably about 500 to 600 miles every single day. Sounds exhausting. It's also stressful. You know, when you're a truck driver, it's like when you clock out, you're still living in your truck. You're still having to like worry about where you're going to park it or, you know, worry about other vehicles. There's so much that goes into it that you don't realize. And for me, it really kind of opened up my eyes to kind of just like having to step up like in those ways of actually having real responsibility in the sense that when you're driving a fully loaded truck at 80,000 pounds, it's like, you know, full well at any second, you could very easily kill yourself or kill other people. Can you imagine getting to that point where you've been driving all day into the night and you realize that if you stop paying attention for one moment, it's everything. So how did Fry get there? It turns out that Rai grew up around trucks. His dad drove them for a living, though not long haul. I just told him recently, I was like, I don't know how the, how the hell you still do this. Like, it's crazy. I mean, I have a lot of respect for him and, and everybody who drives trucks. When Rye was about to graduate from college at the School of Visual Arts in New York, the two of them sat down to lunch, and his dad asked, what were his plans after school? And jokingly, I was like, I'm going to go drive a truck, like, just to kind of piss him off. <laughs> Here he is, like, you know, very old school, blue-collar worker, same thing with my mom, like, 
both come from working class families and me and my younger sister were the first in our families to go to college. So I just like, you know, it's one of those things just kind of, I knew it get under his skin, but for some reason it kind of, the idea stuck. And then sure enough, like a week before I was set to graduate, I put it in my head where I was like, you know what, I'm going to leave New York and go figure out how to become a truck driver. And that's just what he did. He gets on a Greyhound from New Jersey to Missouri and starts working towards his trucking license. Make no mistake, Rai couldn't just get behind the wheel and start snapping pictures of sunsets and ghost towns. At first, in fact, he had to set aside his artistic instincts and learn the ropes as a trucker. That first year I spent on the road, um, I had all these high hopes of publishing a book from the work I shot on the road. And, you know, I kind of set my sights really high. And sure enough, when I got fully into that life in the first few months, I was just totally over my head and did not expect the whole experience to be that intense. And in that sense, I think, you know, I kind of decided to put the camera down and not photograph for the first few months. In other words, Rye had to become a trucker. He started by training with an experienced driver living in the truck with him. And after five months, he was one of the crew with his own truck. There is kind of this amazing camaraderie, I think, amongst truckers. I'm really fascinated by it because it's it's sort of this like, it's hard to describe, but it's almost like a self-deprecating yet like very proud sort of aura that I think truckers carry because they, especially nowadays, I think, um, because just how like fast the world moves and, you know, how busy we all pretend to be. It's like truckers kind of get forgotten about, even though they know that like, you know, if trucks just decide to shut down and go on strike tomorrow, we'd have nothing, you know, the grocery stores would be empty. You'd have no furniture. I mean, literally everything in your house is at one point or another shipped around in a truck. So truckers make up the backbone of our economy. And according to Rye, they really embrace the role of the unsung hero. You literally get to a point where, like, I felt like I was unbreakable. Like, I literally felt like I could be thrown any set of circumstances and just keep going. And so in that sense, it's kind of dangerous because you kind of take pride in the fact that you're, like, out there suffering alone for the most part. And you just keep going and going and going because it just never stops. You know, there's, there's, there's always more and more work. faster you get somewhere to unload that means you know the quicker you can get somewhere to reload and it's kind of this crazy cycle that just never ends in that sense there's a lot to take in on the road things are constantly changing around you as you cross from state to state landscapes landmarks people. Eventually, Rizai as a photographer took over. It became a practice for me of honing my skills with people in terms of kind of seeing how, seeing different people's reactions to being photographed or being asked even to be photographed. And especially with truckers, as you can imagine, they tend to be reclusive in a lot of ways. Um, so, you know, the idea of a camera in their face or some, a stranger approaching them when they're ready, you know, you're kind of on guard as a trucker anyway. So I really became this almost like a struggle to kind of break those those barriers down through kind of just gaining trust and 
you know, you don't have all day to do that. You have maybe sometimes five or 10 minutes. It took joining the camaraderie of truckers for Rye to be able to capture their personalities through the lens. And really, it's that skill in building connections of trust, often spontaneously, that makes for compelling pictures. I always think about one of the rodeos I, I went to a couple of years ago in Utah, and I showed up with, you know, like glitter eyeliner and my nails painted. And, you know, I'm like fully decked out in my cowboy boots and, you know, Wranglers and everything. And, you know, the cowboys kind of just look at me sideways, like knowing that something's like not quite right. <laughs> sure enough, you know, 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, you know, I'm sitting there literally helping them tie their like bull ropes, getting ready to ride. And we're talking about like, you know, if they were painting their nails, what color they would paint their nails. And in that way, I think it, you know, it ties back to just like how I operated as a photographer. And, you know, of course that translated afterwards when I got off the road that first year and then started working on more of these stories and going more into these intimate communities, like whether it's, you know, the two weeks I spent in the Navajo Nation working on a story for time, or I did a story up in British Columbia a couple of years ago about some of the indigenous women who are, you know, protesting some of the oil and gas companies' pipeline expansions through some of the reservations there. I mean, it definitely helped me astronomically to like really respect that process of gaining the trust of, of these people that you're trying to, you know, share their stories with the world. to know Rye as someone who's made it his mission to meet people from all walks of life. What does being American mean to him? Honestly, I, I would say like, to me, it's being as open and vulnerable as a person as possible. I mean, just the whole thing with trucking, I mean, from the outsider on a, on a surface level, you think of the like, you know, toughened American as someone who's sort of like, as a result, closed off or, you know, maybe not like soft in that sense but i think you know my responsibility as a person as a creative as an american is like you know to not judge a single person regardless of you know what they believe in or what they don't believe in or you know how closed off or how open they are you know i've been fortunate to be on the road and meet so many different kinds of people I know the magic for me, like where I get the most motivation and what fires me up to like wake up every day and keep pushing is the fact that I've been able to sit down with people that have nothing in common with me and find that common ground to like understand each other. And then you kind of see the light bulbs go off in each other. I don't know, modern America and where we're at now and how there's this need and that we all need to, you know, come together as opposed to pushing each other further away. It's, I think it's in that sense of just like letting our, our guards down and kind of just like being open and vulnerable and understanding and listening to each other. I was driving through Texas one time the first year I was on the road and I remember seeing the sign for Van Zant County, which is in Northeast Texas. 
I grew up a lot on like kind of like old outlaw country folk music. So a lot of like Towns Van Zandt and stuff like that. I'd like remembered from a documentary about Towns Van Zandt that was named after his, his family, that county. So I was like, I wonder where, where Towns is buried. You know, I stopped for five minutes, looked it up, found the cemetery outside of Dallas, Fort Worth area, and like literally drove my semi overnight to the cemetery. And like got there perfect timing at like just before sunrise. wandered around the cemetery you know found a little tombstone for Towns' grave and just sat there and just like you know kind of teared up and watched the sun come up and then jumped back in my truck and, and kept driving I look back and I'm like man that's sort of these moments that you know nobody can ever take away from me You're hearing the second movement of Road Movies for Violin and Piano, written by John Adams in 1995. Adams' words for this music are brief, but evocative, even mysterious. A solitary figure in an empty desert landscape. We're both just painting violin and piano together. Each note's like a drop of color brushed onto this silent canvas that we have. It's very still. I'm trying to become one of the listeners as much as the one playing. You know, it's interesting to describe music as still because music is always moving forward, right? Movement is in how we experience music. As a player, physically, you can't create sound without moving. And as a listener, you're there for a journey, right? You want to be taken somewhere. Right. You're there to be moved, so to speak, even if you're sitting still. So it's a paradox. It's sort of like you can look at a photograph that has activity, right? That's full of life. But in the end, it's just a picture. It doesn't move at all. So if you can have movement within the still frame of a picture, here we have stillness within the movement of music. I love art that does that, that's playing against what it is, that does the opposite of what it should, right? And yet, it works. There's another way in which Adams goes against the grain here, right? Which is that he has you retune your instrument. 
So usually I'm tuned in fifths like this. And the lowest string is a G. But here it goes down to an F. Which is more than just adding one note to the violin. Because you're actually throwing off where all the other notes fall. Which means almost relearning how to play on that string. And it gives you this really weird, deep sound. Every now and then, the kaleidoscope turns and we get a new set of colors. But we're always kind of wandering without a destination. which reminds me in a way of something I read once by John Steinbeck in Travels with Charlie, his road trip book. It's this idea he calls vacilando, which is a Spanish word. And I actually have what he wrote here. If one is vacilando, he writes, that means he's going somewhere, but doesn't greatly care whether or not he gets there, although he has direction. Our second guest today on American Stories is one of these vacilando types. But he's not a lone wanderer. He's actually a family man, and the whole household lives on the road with him year-round. They've gone through a bunch of different vehicles over the years. An RV, a van, and most iconically... A 1978 Volkswagen Champagne Edition Riviera ASI Campwagon. So let's meet Nathan Swartz. It was 2008, he was a single dad at that time, when he decided to quit his desk job and take his nine-year-old son with him to see the country. We started in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and ended up in Austin for a while and then a lot of time in Arizona and West Texas. And uh, we were just living that sort of a life. And then this uh, girl I knew from college who I had been drastically in love with all my life, but she had been moving around doing all kinds of things on her own sent me an email out of nowhere and I assumed that meant that she wanted me to come and get her to live in our Volkswagen bus and somehow she agreed to do that after a few months. Fast forward a few years and Nathan and Renee had become a family on the road. They now have four kids, all of whom they've homeschooled as they've bounced across the country. We just find a national park we haven't been to, open up Google Maps and type in Walmart and McDonald's and if those don't show up, we figure it's probably going to be a pretty cool spot. I used to think that I wanted to go see everything, but uh, really, I just like the part about being with my family. 
We like to go canoeing and snowboarding. And lately we've been doing a lot of skateboarding. Except for the homeschooling, it's like a nonstop family vacation. And with spotty internet connection, no one's sitting around looking at their phone. We play um, like Uno and we just got Scooby-Doo Clue. Those are more irritating games, to be honest. I don't even know how to play them, so I'm like trying to learn the rules and, okay guys, everyone's gonna get a card. What's the card gonna do? I don't know, because I'm just rating it too. But for Nathan, raising the kids on the road is about more than just the good times. It's also about how he wants them to see the world, about having them grow up being able to approach anyone with an open mind. You know, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania where people were pretty uh, isolated from the world. And it was just a crazy world to live in. And then to grow up thinking that's what is normal and then move to even a, a small city like Pittsburgh and see, oh, wow, there are different people and people have different opinions. and even when people have crazy different opinions in my mind, like you got to learn how to talk to everyone. And so you can at least have cordial conversations, if not become everybody's best buddy. So I just thought, well, this is going to be a cool way to show them that and show them that there are a lot of different people in the U.S. and then eventually around the world. After years of crisscrossing the U.S., the family had the idea to band together with friends to travel south of the border. It started out as a trip to Baja, California in the Volkswagen until on a whim, it turned into a more ambitious adventure. And when we got to the bottom of Baja, we, had, we hadn't planned it, but we had all the paperwork we needed to take the ferry over to the, the mainland. And so a lot of people went back, but we just crossed the, the ferry and kept going. And in that Volkswagen, it was junk and it still is, but we could just keep it going enough that by the time we got to Belize, it was like a year or so in. A whole year, almost 2,000 miles from one corner of Mexico to the other. A pretty big commitment for what started as a spontaneous ferry ride. We were going to keep going, but it started to get to be so junky that I was worried that like, man, this thing's going to break down at some point and it's going to get left here. Sure enough, the bus picked the worst time to break down. We were in Cancun, camping on the other side of the city. So not really the Cancun you go to on vacation. And it was super hot, like 100 degrees, humid. There's no air conditioning in the Volkswagen at all. So we would go to like grocery stores just to soak up their AC. We spent months there doing that. And it seemed like everything was going right. And then we start going down the road and the stupid thing breaks down again. Nobody wants to sit there in the hot bus on the side of some road, and everyone just loses it. time that sort of happened and, and still when it happens when there's some major issue in life 
we all just sort of realize, all right, well, this totally sucks. And, and someone's going to say, oh, we should just be living in a house or someone should, will say just whatever. And we're like, well, that's not what we're doing. This is the situation we're in. So the only thing we can do is figure it out and try to move on from there and, and fix it down the road. Like, I'm not talking about the vehicle at that point, but if there's an actual problem and we can all come together and solve it and, and move forward, then that just makes me think that, all right, well, even if these kids are terrible at division and have less than the best manners, at least I'm showing them how to do this sort of thing. Like figure out problems in life, make your life happen. And if you don't like what life you made happen, the only people that can fix it are you and the people you choose to live with. So I kind of try to keep that attitude going and I think it's working out so far. Oh, I quit driving around that Volkswagen and have a pretty reliable Ford now. It also has air conditioning. I've always been really into the freedom thing of America and uh, really believe that growing up. But I still think it's a place where, at least in my experience, you can kind of make most of what you want to happen, happen. I realize that not everybody agrees with that and that's not true for everybody. And it doesn't mean that you can have everything you want, but if you have a specific lifestyle you want, you can probably make that happen just by, you know, really killing it on, on what you're willing to sacrifice. I mean, my twenties weren't spent chugging beer and partying and stuff with all my friends. I spent them raising my oldest son who was a kid at the time you know maybe I wouldn't have chosen to do that but at the end of the day I still feel like being determined enough to make things happen when I didn't feel like life was going the way I wanted it to allowed me to have everything I want at this point I do think that if you set your sights on a lifestyle you can you can achieve that there's some amount of luck involved in it too So as promised, we're closing out the episode with our complete performance of John Adams' road movies, all three movements as a complete journey in themselves. By the way, we should mention something about the third and final movement, which you were just hearing during Nathan's segment. This movement has a really funky name. It's titled 40% Swing, which shows you a bit of Adams' witty sense of humor, right? Because playing with swing usually means playing with a certain feel or even instinct. In other words, not an exact measurement. Yeah. So he actually writes that he was thinking of synthesizers, where you can dial in the exact amount of groove that you want the computer to put into how it plays back the rhythm. It's like Adams is teasingly trying to program us. But also just telling us to feel it. At 40%. So here we go. We're so glad you're with us to hear this performance.
Thank you.
You're listening to American Stories, and again, you just heard Road Movies by John Adams. Thanks for tuning in. To see some of Rai's work, check out his website at ryshrosky.com. And if you're interested in reading more about Nathan and his family's travels, or if maybe you're inspired to learn how you might be able to take your life on the road, we'd really recommend the family's online magazine at wanderleemagazine.com. That's Wanderlee without an E. Till next time, take care. Mm-hmm.